Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a $100 a year subscription. Hit the link in the show notes. Enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive access to all of Real Leaders to get you to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode, and always keep it real. All right. All right, here we go. Let's get this show on the road here. Let's do it. Here we go in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the real leaders podcast i'm your host kevin edwards joining us today folks is the ceo and co-founder of relocalize please welcome mr wayne mcintyre wayne thanks for being with us today thanks kevin happy to be here it's uh exciting to have a chance to talk to you so thrilled to have you on the show today because i think you guys are doing some big things and some big things need some time to get started Right, Wayne. So we, what we want to do in this episode today, folks, is we want to kind of break down Wayne's big idea, and we're going to start by starting at the origin story. So Wayne, go ahead and tell our followers a little bit about yourself and how you you started your impact journey. Absolutely. So I, you know, it started for me. Um, it started for me in school. I, I studied biochemistry and genetics, and really, my I started my uh, my first mission was was pharmaceuticals and healthcare. Right? How do we help people? How do we cure cancer? Was actually the first thing on my list. Um, you know, I, I didn't do that by the way yet, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep that on the to-do list. Um, and so I started out, it started out science. And I started out as a lawyer. So, uh, as a young Canadian, um, there was a, there was a firm in Boston that was, was really the best in the world for this place. And you know, I, I applied myself to make sure I could get myself into that firm and, and start to make an impact. Um, from there, I realized that, uh, you know, I could have more impact as a risk taker than a risk manager. So I, uh, I walked away from the law and I have been, uh, been in tech ever since. Uh, I started in leadership roles in, uh, in biotech and oncology. So again, trying to cure cancer here was the idea back then. Um, and since then, uh, I think uh, focused on new problems and new technologies. For me, my passion right now is, is sustainability and uh, the, the becoming uh, climate climate urgency that we're facing right now interesting so you have this kind of like a little passion in biology mm-hmm. which tells me you're aware of what's going on in the world you, mm-hmm. you go to mints you have some some early understanding of risk management and and from the corporate legal side which is really interesting mm-hmm. to me and then you make the shift you kind of finally came to your senses you say hey look you know legal is not where it's at business is where i want to be i want to make a change and you want to take some risks so 
So kind of tell us a little bit about uh, some of the problems that you discovered throughout this journey that led to the origin of Relocalize. Well, I think, uh, I mean, even starting with with the practice of law, I mean, again, a great practice. I think they're amazing. You know, it's a, it's a great profession of people making a real difference there, right? Um, but when I looked at the world of, you know, corporate finance, the world of law, you know, again, uh, why do we do it? Why did I do it? I was there for the wrong reasons, frankly. You know, at first, I thought I was going to change the world, but then I started getting a bit of attached to it because it comes with a great paycheck, right? right. Um, but I realized, you know what? I could do more taking more risk. I could do more putting more on the line. I could do more by becoming an entrepreneur. And uh, it took me a few years to really uh, get the courage to do that. Um, but uh, once I did, I never looked back. Let's talk about that a little bit because mm -hmm. this is something I struggle with. This is something that a lot of people listening to this struggle with is, man, you know, I've got this idea. I think I'm better than maybe at this company that I'm currently in. And, you know, mm -hmm. I want to, I want to just go out and just do me. You know, I want to go out and explore, but gosh, that's just so frightening. There's no security there. You know, healthcare, there's, uh, you know, I've got kids to pay for, you know, but tell, tell me a little bit about your process and what built up this courage. I think, uh, you know, one, I had some great advisors, right? I had some great mentors who I saw doing exactly what I had done um and taking those big risks and it's terrifying i think you, you said it well like it's, it's absolutely terrifying at times to, to step away from a lucrative career where where you know people are are you know there's a lot of respect for certain professions uh, whether that be uh you know doctor or lawyer you know management consultant business leader anything right and and to step away uh, actually people do treat you a bit like you're insane um there there was a there was a small intervention stage as i was leaving they're like you know, here is a canadian you know uh, from a small law firm in canada or a law school in canada makes it to really the big time right and do you have any idea what you're doing are you crazy right and uh and uh but you know i think ultimately if you follow your passion uh you live a you live a purposeful authentic life I don't have any regrets from the decision that uh, it's never been easy. Entrepreneurship is not easy, but uh, yeah, I think sometimes you just got to jump, right? Absolutely. I mean, certainly no regrets there. I mean, tell me yeah. about a few of the individuals, especially family members. What were family members saying to you at that time? Were you getting uh, good advice? Uh, what kind of advice were you getting from family members? Well, the uh, I've been very fortunate to have supportive family. Um, I think, you know, but they, they come from a different world. I mean, they're, they're boomers. They grew up with a depression mindset. And to be honest, I did not consult them too deeply on that decision. And uh, not because uh, you know, I, they were very supportive when I made it. Um, but you know, I think uh, the folks that I talked to most in making those decisions were the entrepreneurs, the people who had taken the leap. Because mm -hmm. I think when you come from a perspective of, I did never jumped before. Um, you know, you come to it, come from it from a perspective of fear. And so, you know, if you're coming from it from a perspective of, you know, I've done this and, you know, I have some good friend who, who you know, who put it all on the line. He's a very successful, uh, very successful entrepreneur, two exits. He works at one of the major tech companies in Silicon Valley. Uh, he's the person, one of the people who inspired me to take that leap. Mm. He did it first mm. and, uh, and he put it all on the line. And uh, uh, it wasn't about the success. It was about the purpose and the mission. That really inspired me. And so, uh, talking about security, right? Usually, it's financial security mm -hmm. first. 
uh, did you, what were your thoughts on approaching investors first? Uh, how were you going to be able to pay for yourself? Was it just your own savings? Was it taking out loans? What were some of the things initially um, that, that you tried in order to make sure that um, you would be able to have, uh, you know, some lifeblood in your business? So, I mean, I, I think, you know, I had to go back to school, the school of the real world, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, when I took that leap, I think the first leap was a leap into an organization where someone else uh, was the leader, was the CEO, not me, someone I could learn from, mm -hmm. and someone who had already raised a significant amount of money to support the mission, which in this case was uh, to, uh, to uh, treatments for pancreatic cancer. And that first leap, you know, I had somebody else there to, to mentor me. I had an organization that was small and, and entrepreneurial, but I didn't have to start everything from the beginning myself. So for me, that was a good journey. I think, you know, so there's, there are those entrepreneurs that, that go straight out of school or drop out of school and start their business and, and they know where they're going to go. Um, for me, uh, most of the businesses that I'm passionate about are complex businesses. Um, you know, if you're going to develop a new biotechnology, um, or other areas, you need a support team around you. And you know, these are complex B2B businesses. And I had a lot to learn. So my first step for me was let's leap, let's jump, let's go to a smaller paycheck. Let's take a, a lot of equity compensation, but at the same time, um, let's learn from people who, uh, who, who, who know, frankly, a lot, heck of a lot more than I did at that stage of my career. And uh, maybe they still know a lot more than I do now, but <laughs> that's the, learn from others. I think that was the first step. We love that. We love that. And, and we hear that all the time, too. I mean, like, I certainly believe in you. You want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go with the group. Mm -hmm. from, from your perspective, too, I mean, the, the one thing that entrepreneurs run into is like, well, you don't have the experience. And, and mm. getting that experience from others, what were some of the early lessons and takeaways from this individual who had taken this this leap of faith and, and wanted to to bring you along in the team? I mean, this was someone who had an ability to, I think, really uh, sell a vision, right? Um, he was able to, I think, get investors excited uh, at the same time attract the talent that would also prove to the investors that you know, we could do some serious science. And you know, there was credibility there. Um, because again, biotechnology and pharmaceuticals, you don't just jump right in and, and uh, create a, a novel uh, therapeutic compound, right? And so uh, I think what I learned from him was, you know, one, um, one, sell a great vision, and two, make sure you have the, the, the team, in particular technical team, when you're talking about tech, who can back up that vision. Um, and when you put together great people, great technicians, great thought leaders from a technology perspective with a story that connects a human being uh, and gets people excited, that's, that's it's powerful, right? So let's stay along the timeline. We're now at this mm -hmm. first company. When did you exit and, and why did you make the change to now relocalize or were there a few more steps? And so, well, the, we reached a point that the company raised uh, several hundred million dollars. So it was really a successful uh, fundraising effort. Uh, the cost of bringing a pharmaceutical to market is really high. Um, and, you know, it was right at the time when there was a bit of a, 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 a down, uh, down cycle in biotechnology. And so, unfortunately, uh, for this business, um, you know, there was a bit of a, 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 a a strategy being played, I guess, on, on raising that next huge round. 
Um, it was a it was a grand slam swing for the fences in terms of of how the business was going to be financed. Unfortunately, the grand slam uh, ended up being a pop fly to center field, and so uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah, yeah, there was some success. There was an exit, but it wasn't the big uh, the big uh, the big exit that everyone had been hoping for. Mm-hmm. And so that was the point where it's like, okay, if we're not uh, if we're not swinging for the fences anymore, it's time for me to move on somewhere else gain some new experience and continue the journey. And, and when now we're in this state of we, we've exited the organization, we've got, we got the experience. Um, tell me about uh, what revelations kind of came to you during this phase. What was that phase like of kind of trying to figure out the next move and, mm-hmm. and what, what idea or what caused the idea to generate a free localized? So for the next phase, um, you know, I spent most of my time at software after that. Um, and you know, uh, flight safety. I ran a, uh, a software company that was uh, dedicated to flight safety and 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 uh, for commercial airlines and, okay. and uh, military as well. Um, and you know, I spent a few years as I think a leader of other people's companies before you know really deciding you know what it's time to make that jump and go out on law, right? And you know, I'd pick up the leadership experience as a CEO. Um, had you know. Quite a bit of transactional and deal making experience at that stage of my career, and then uh, the first step was into professional services. So I started working as an advisor uh, to others, um, and then uh, while germinating some of my own, you know, business concepts, and uh, you know, fast forward through that process, which was a period of years, but fast forward through that process, where did we end up? Um, well, I think you know it was clear to me that. You know, I, I had the tools and the understandings of what makes what could make a startup succeed and what you know how do you build a strategy or a business model that can succeed um, and I had the purpose which was sustainability and uh, that's where the search began for the right the right concept and, and so what uh, let's talk about the concepts then tell me about relocalize I'm dying to know <laughs> <laughs> so you know, so in that advisory period I, I had the Fortune, you know, I worked as an advisor to a board of directors and a CEO of a public biotechnology company making uh, materials for green plastics, bioreactors for hmm. making green plastics. It was really exciting. Interesting. Uh, they had some major, major, um, major, major corporations, and I don't want to, you know, put it all out there, but you know, large furniture companies, um, automotive companies, a lot of really broad interest in what they were doing. Uh, and then the price of oil fell out, right? And suddenly, you know, it was pennies more expensive to be sustainable with their green, their green plastics molecule. And unfortunately, the company struggled. You know, what happened was, you know, companies and people were not willing to pay for green. Um, and so when I went on this mission to say, all right, how do we, how do we, you know, we're facing an economic, ecological Know, potential catastrophe here, and I hate to be alarmist, but when you look at global warming, when you look at the declines in insect populations, when you look at the algal blooms in the ocean, deforestation of the Amazon, uh, I'm really tr- truly concerned for my three children right now. Um, and I realized, look, if I'm going to make an impact, I can't just be more sustainable. It also has to be economically viable. You know, we have to, you know, we need people, you need to bring forward a solution that people are going to buy not because they want to be sustainable but because it's better and you know that's how you make an impact where 
regardless of how people feel about sustainability and whether it's as urgent for them as it is for me, they're buying your product because it's a great product, because it makes, not necessarily because it makes a difference, but they're making a difference at the same time. Bit of a Trojan horse strategy, right? So we need great economics combined with great sustainability. Um, and we settled in on micromanufacturing as, as the best way to do that. It's always best when it's inherent in the, the company's products or services. Like most of the entrepreneurs that don't even know that they're creating an impact are sometimes the best, right? It's, yeah. it's a business problem just being solved in a socially or environmentally responsible way. Tell me about the concept right now. Um, and, and what I think I would appreciate, Wayne, is, is for the viewer that's just getting used to this uh, complex mm -hmm. subject, maybe a few analogies or just uh, some scenarios of what they can kind of relate this to. Sure, sure. I think, I mean, I think we all know that we're paying too much for food right now, right? We all know that, you know, where supply chains are, are, are really a problem. So we saw the, the blockage in the Suez Canal, right? We've, we've been to the store to go buy toilet paper and the shelves are empty, right? We've experienced, you know, what, how important supply chain is and also just how long it is, right? And so you know, there's some food products, you know, like, you know, like tin, tinned um, pineapples and tinned fruit that could be grown in South America, travel to Thailand to be packaged and then travel back to the United States and Canada to be sold, right? And just, I think any person can understand that, you know, when you have food, for example, or other products traveling over these really great distances, it comes at a cost, right? It comes at a cost of carbon, it comes at a cost of shipping, it comes at a cost of waste. Um, and so the basic premise and concept we're doing is we just need to make stuff closer to home, right? And, you know, closer to home could mean, you know, reshoring, bringing things back to the United States, right? Bringing things closer to home could be, you know what, it's, it's, it's being grown in your own backyard. You know, there's a huge spectrum of what's possible, but closer is better is the general premise. And you know, that's really the, the mission we set out on is how can we make products, um, in particular, for our case, food and beverage products, closer to home to just solve that massive supply chain. I think that's really interesting. And, and so what you're saying is, what you're suggesting is, by creating these you know these produce closer to home um, one is going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions with co2 but also and it's going to come at a more affordable price is that accurate absolutely and so you know this is something that you can do again not all products are ready for this right so the you know if we if we think about things like um uh well products made of water for example right so if you go to a if you go to a grocery store, you know you, know, you see that tetra pack of juice on the shelf, right? Mm. It's a it's a uh, it's a it's a fruit punch or it's a or it's an iced tea even. It's any of these you know these packages of products. What's in there, right? There there are two things. It's a concentrate, which means you know juice concentrate, and it's water, right? And so if we're manufacturing these a great distance away, with water that's coming from a local source. Why aren't we just adding that water closer to home? Why are we putting water on trucks? So that's a great example where we've been doing it for decades and decades where we put water on trucks, we don't think anything about it because mm -hmm. trucking was cheap and we weren't worried about the carbon and CO2 impact of all that transportation. Well, suddenly it's like, you know, hey, um, maybe there's a, another way of doing this, 
right? Maybe there's a way, and, and, and I think that same analogy works, water on trucks is really the low hanging fruit. And a tomato is water, energy or sunlight, and you know, some nutrients, but it's mostly water. It's the same thing when we're talking about produce, whether we're talking about a uh, package of juice or a package of packaged ice or all kinds of different products, we should not be putting water on trucks. I think that's the basic premise of, uh, of our business focus anyways. Mm. The same could be true for microchips or anything else. Could we make them closer to home? And how would we do that? What technology do we need to make that possible so that they don't have to come on a ship from China, right? And they can be subject to our environmental controls and regulations at home as well to make sure that the products are being sustainably produced. I love it. And I have so many questions right now. The first one is you talked a lot about your mentor. The takeaway for you was selling the vision. Mm -hmm. What does this look like in your head in 50 years if this takes hold and, and comes to scale? So, I mean, so we imagine a world, right, where food goes from um, production onto a last mile delivery vehicle, like a neuro, which, you know, an automated vehicle, electrified transportation, right to the customer. Mm. That's it. Production to customer, no trucks, right? There's no big factory. It's actually all done in a small, fully robotic factory or automated production uh, line. And it goes straight to the customer, fresh, uh, right after being picked, uh, packaged, produced, whatever the product might be, but direct to the customer. That's one step journey from food, uh, from production to plate is ultimately the vision. Incredible, incredible. And to you and for, for people listening out there, mm -hmm. everyone, not everyone, but many people have their own versions and definitions of scale. How yes. do you specifically define scale? think about it so i scale so if we think about the way we all learned you know like at least, at least uh, middle-aged guys like me in business we always learned the bigger is better right so scale means more affordability scale means better economics and i think for a long time this was true but it was built on the foundation of a couple of important principles hmm. one of those principles was there's a, you know, we don't have to worry about the environment. That's an externality, not an internality. We don't have to worry about the environment. So that cost is not really a cost. The other part is that we have an ever increasingly cheaper supply of raw materials. And we have an ever increasing supply of labor, right? Really that's what this, you know, international global, you know, tens of thousands of miles long supply chains was built on that foundation, right? And, and I think what we've learned is recently that, you know, if we factor in the cost of carbon, if we factor in the impact that we're having beyond just our business, but the impact on the environment, if we look at some of the, the real costs of transportation, which thanks to COVID perhaps, we're actually really paying the real cost of transportation now, suddenly this idea that, you know, more and more and more centralization, more and more and more and more scale is always better breaks. So just to give you a sense, so the first microfactory that we've built uh, is making a packaged food. It's actually making packaged ice. So again, taking water off of trucks. And the economics are 20% cheaper than the existing product, right? So more than 20% cheaper, depending on a bit, but at least 20% cheaper. Mm -hmm. So, and we're doing this in microfactories, which means the scale is, uh, you know, a scale instead of serving you know, 20,000 stores worth of product, 
we're serving 120 you know, uh, stores. So it's what we would call micro-industrial scale. Um, and conventional thinking would have said that that was, that was not going to work. But uh, uh, because of the cost and reality of transportation today, the economics already work. So we can be greener and cheaper and better. And, and from this journey with your investors, kind of talk about those investor mm-hmm. entrepreneur dynamics. What mm-hmm. do they want from you to build originally? Because this is a big idea. We'll t- talk about the minimum viable product. What were some mm-hmm. of the demands that they had for you uh, to get started? So I mean, we, we, we were fortunate. You know, one of my, uh, you know, the inventor of our technology, um, you know, came from the ice industry and the food industry. Because believe it or not, ice is food, if you ask the FDA. Really? And so we came to this with actually a, a really understanding of what the consumer wanted for this product. So I think that was the first step. So when we talk about minimum viable product, and when we talk about the actual product that will be consumed, we had great confidence. And we did run some, some small tests to make sure that we, had, we already had fit with the consumer. The real question was, how do we have fit for the, the businesses that we're doing business with, right? And to get them on board and get the investors on board, what we really needed to prove was, hey, we actually, we had to, we had to prove with a prototype that you really can do things more efficiently, that you really can do things in an automated way. Because to be honest, it, it, it kind of broke people's brains when you tell them that centralization is always cheaper. So we had, we had to prove it. And I think uh, we proved it at small scale uh, first. And right now we're actually uh, about to launch the world's first fully autonomous micro factory for food and beverage in 2022, where we'll prove it at that full micro industrial scale. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's what they want. They want proof. You know, they want some level of proof. They want the vision at the beginning and they'll give you some, some capital to get rolling. But at the end of the day, um, you need proof, right? That you can deliver, deliver on that vision, right? Congratulations. You know, very inspiring. I'm sure a lot of listeners right now are like, wow, that's really cool. I can't believe, you know, this is what the world may look like. And wow, like this is a new concept. And ice is food. Incredible. <laughs> Tell me, though, about the mindset that this is going to take to carry you out. Obviously, entrepreneurs, and we hear all the time, you know, and there's ups, there's downs. Um, you know, it takes a lot of persistence. Already, we talked about, you know, overcoming fear with courage. Tell me a little bit about the mindset and how yours has evolved throughout this process. I mean, I think, you know, I think you, you nailed it when you say there are ups and downs in being an entrepreneur, right? It's, you know, uh, uh, you know, especially you know, whether that be technological, you know, you'll, you'll, one day everything is working perfectly. The next day you discover, you know, unforeseen uh, complications in the technological development process. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you and I have talked a little bit before, Kevin, about, you know, stoicism, right? And I think, you know, the obstacle is the way. <laughs> and I think actually, you know, uh, having only recently read that book, uh, it really connected with me because, I mean, that's exactly what on- entrepreneurship is, right? It's, oh, here's an obstacle. Actually, this obstacle is, is here to teach me something, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that be, all right, we need to go a different direction technologically, or, you know, what, we're not quite there on our value proposition for a customer. But it's really about, I think, engaging with those obstacles, uh, embracing those obstacles, and whether you go through, over, around, uh, or explode them, whatever the strategy is to ultimately uh, overcome them, um, embrace them. Right? I think that's the that's the key right there. Right? I love it. I love it. I'm glad. I'm glad you read the book too. <laughs> that's great. 
Um, so one of the the figures in that book, I believe, and maybe it's just not the book, maybe it's just I'm listening to Ryan Holiday too much, but mm-hmm. um, he talks about this orator. And what this orator did is he had rocks in his mouth. He put rocks in his mouth purposely and tried to regurgitate her speech to the lawyers to save his money over time and, and really provide some some type of defense for the legal system. This was an environment or something that he did that was unique to make sure that it would be difficult. So by the time he had those conversations, he was ready. Mm-hmm. What about your environment, Wayne? Are you doing anything in particular just in your own career that you found to help you with difficult situations? Yeah, I think, you know, if you if you want to deal with difficult situations, one thing that really helps is breadth. Mm-hmm. And so if you're looking at the way a typical career goes, um, at least when I was starting my career, the conventional thinking was, you know, go deep, right? Specialize early, um, stay on track. That's the fastest way to a bigger paycheck. That's the fastest way to respect. That's the fastest way to a promotion, right? Um, But unfortunately, what it takes away from you is breadth. And I really do think that leaders today need more breadth. They need to sometimes go from opportunity to opportunity, try out different things, have different experiences, because it's the sum of those experiences that makes breadth possible. So, you know, if I hadn't been exposed to aerospace technology, Part of the philosophy that goes into building of our micro factories is really built on some aerospace philosophies about how do you support you know, complex products that cannot fail in the field like an airplane, right? There are a whole bunch, we're bringing those philosophies to the product, the, to our food manufacturing platforms, but we would never, you know, if I hadn't had that opportunity that was in an adjacent sector in a different area, and if I hadn't sort of, you know, spent time and sometimes even made mistakes in making careers, but learned new experiences, and tried new different jobs, you just wouldn't have that breadth where you can, hey, oh, wow, I can take this from biotechnology. I can take this from, uh, from aerospace. You can take this from software development and really you know, come to an obstacle with not just one bag of tools, but multiple bags of tools and also multiple Rolodexes where you can pick up and also build on the experiences of others from outside of your own industry and space. And that's really where the magic happens, right? That's where the ideas come, is those diverse ideas and perspectives on life that kind of create your own style. How would you describe your own style as a leader? So for me, uh, leadership is is really quite simple, right? It's about service. It's about empowerment. uh, And it's about humility, right? If you start to drink your own Kool-Aid, well, you know what's in that Kool-Aid, right? And I think that's, for me, that's really... Um, I think what, what putting yourself into new, uncomfortable experiences on a regular basis, having to get up to speed, having to be the person who knows the least in a room for a short period of time, you know, while you get up to speed is, is not a comfortable experience, right? It's not an easy experience, but it it actually teaches you just how much you can learn from others, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately that's, that's what leadership is all about is actually looking around, you know, who can I learn from? Who can I empower? Um, and my personal philosophy always is, you know, again, I, I, I love leaders. I love, you know, I, I love the inspiration you get from a, a fantastic CEO. But, you know, if you go two, three, four, maybe even five or six steps below, you're going to find people who are deeply knowledgeable about their industry, about the realities, about the real challenges on the front line. 
And I think it's you know, empowering those people to create and lead from throughout the organization is what makes a great company. And uh, so I, I see that as my job is to one, learn from all these people, uh, empower them and then capture that knowledge and, 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 and those skills so that we can actually build something great together. Seems like uh, empowering other leaders is a core strategy of, of yours. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about um, maybe your, your management, right? A different type of, it's not leadership, management is obviously mm-hmm. separate from that. How, how do you go about managing a company to make sure that they can work toward achieving that vision? Any, any takeaways that you've learned over your, your years of experience? I think you're right. I mean, you have to, in some ways, you have to separate management from leadership in my mind, right? These are two different skill sets. And sometimes you actually need two people to do this really well, right? You'll have a great manager partnered with a great leader, right? And, you know, everybody has to know where their gaps and weaknesses are. Um, you know, I think I sit sort of somewhere in the middle. Um, I think I'm a, I'm a decent manager. I think I'm a decent leader. Um, and, but you know what, there'll be times where you need to raise somebody up from your organization to actually take the leadership because they've got a vision that, you know, you can help turbocharge or you can help promote or, or partner on the same on the management side. You know, again, you need that. I think it was, you know, either with your partnership, with your team, you need to have both those skill sets. Um, but ultimately, it's about a group of people, not an individual. So I guess that's my philosophy would be. Um, but yeah, not, not specifically answering your question there either. So management, you know, but you do need that management piece. And for me, it's all about having, you know, clear objectives, cascading upwards and cascading downwards um, so that they meet each other um, and that they're, they're aligned throughout an organization and then managing to those objectives. Interesting. Right? I like that. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, I read this article the other day, and it was uh, Airbnb's CEO, and he said the, the biggest threat to their company right now yeah. is a lack of entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. I found that to be very interesting. Um, from from you as you know a, a startup company taking on big behemoth, you talked about the extensiveness of these supply chains that are out there today. Mm-hmm. How do you view yourself in terms of competition and why do you believe so much that you're going to be able to carry this out? So I think, first of all, foremost, we have the typical startup advantage, right? We have no preconceived notions. We got to start with a blank sheet of paper, right? And I think that's a superpower, right? When you can start with a blank sheet of paper, it's a superpower. And unfortunately, in most organizations, it's hard to, they could have that superpower, but it's very hard to start on a blank sheet of paper. There are all these preconceived ideas and structures. Uh, and then even things like cannibalizing your own sales. Like, oh my God, if we do this, we might destroy our own business. You know, there are all these constraints. And so I think, you know, when you think about how do you compete? I mean, when you start from a blank sheet of paper, paper, you, one, that's a superpower, but two, um, you can evolve very quickly around that concept uh, with a small group of people who are really focused on a mission where it's out being constrained or held back. Like large organizations having worked in one, they do have antibodies. You know, they do, and they, they tend to attack things that are new and different and unique. Um, great companies, I think, have structures or cultures in place that prevent that from happening. But most companies have these antibodies and that gives us a, competitive, a real competitive advantage because we have no innovation fighting antibodies that we localize, right? 
I love the the analogies and the comparisons from a biologist perspective that you're giving me today. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna give you one as well. We learned about uh, symbiotic relationships in mm-hmm. college. You know, there's there's uh, mutualism, there's commensalism, there's parasitism. What are some of the collaborations that you're working on? Who are the partners out there where you believe that you can have a mutualistic partnership and benefit and, and uh, benefit from? each other what who are some of the partners that you're looking for i i, I love it yes uh, you know a symbiotic relationship is extremely powerful it's a win-win relationship right uh, well other than the parasitism example uh, <laughs> and i think if if you're looking at how you want to build those win-win relationships i think you should only be building symbiotic relationships you should only be building those win-win relationships and for us that's with retailers right so retailers are you know they're getting all of the the pressure for consumers to do more with sustainability, but you know who controls most of the, the, the levers for sustainability? Their supply chain, right? So the symbiotic relationship that we're trying to create is, hey, let's partner. We're gonna allow you to take control of your supply chain. You know, it's gonna be a private label product. It's your product. It's now your micro factory. And actually we put our micro factories at their distribution centers and fulfillment centers. So it really becomes their micro factory. It's not just our micro factory, it's a symbiotic relationship here. And we're allowing them to basically do something that they wanna do more with own brand, uh, more differentiation, more control of their supply chain and the ability to actually deliver sustainability directly. Uh, so I think that, that's a symbiotic relationship right there. That's how, that's, that's how you build a business. Wayne, I love it. Really appreciate you coming on the Religious Podcast today. Let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I think you pulled it out of me a little bit earlier there, but for me, like I said, um, you know, a leader is someone who cares, right? It seems leader is someone who serves, and a leader is someone who empowers, and a leader without humility to me uh, is not the kind of leader we need for the future because you know, a leader who has some humility can actually allow others to, to lead from, from throughout an organization. For Wayne McIntyre, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, empower others, and always, folks, keep it real. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Kevin.